In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, we read, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried. Have you ever heard a sermon on the burial of Jesus? There haven't been many. In addition, there are very few hymns or worship songs about His burial. Oh, we sing about the old rugged cross and up from the grave He arose, but not so much about His garden grave. I've got a multitude of sermons in my teaching repertoire on the crucifixion and the resurrection, but not much about what happened to Jesus' body in between. For those three days, the body of Jesus was buried. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of the Lord's burial as part of the gospel. He's discussing now the gospel that saves us, the gospel in which we stand, This is the gospel Paul received from God and delivered to men. This is the gospel that changes eternal destinies. Nothing is more vital to any of us than this divine invitation, this gospel, this good news from heaven. We all know the gospel includes the crucified Christ and, of course, the risen Lord. But verse 4 surprises us. It mentions as part of the gospel... He was buried. A couple of years ago, Kathy and I, we hosted a retreat for ministry couples, for senior pastors and their wives. We went to a beautiful conference center in Rome, Georgia. Of course, we provided the usual Bible teaching and times of worship, but we also wanted to plan some fun for the couples. We hoped to provide them a break, interject a little levity into their normally serious lives. And so one morning, we scheduled a graveyard scavenger hunt. We took them on a trip to an old pre-Civil War cemetery in downtown Rome. Tombstones cover several blocks. And we gave the couples a list of details to look for on old headstones. You got points for seeing strange names. Or points for your own name on the tombstone or points for your birthday, or points for memorable inscriptions, or points for funny inscriptions. And Kath and I, we racked up the points. Hey, we found a gravestone with the inscription, Graves. Graves, for gravestones. And how's this for an appropriate gravestone? Killingsworth. I may be revealing my morbid sense of humor here. I really like what was on Old Venable's tombstone. Here's the inscription. A great spirit in a frail body, unwavering in honor, love, loyalty, and courage, and a total abstainer of alcoholic beverages. (laughs) There has to be a story behind the tonal abstainer of alcoholic beverages. Here's another tombstone that caught my attention. In bold letters, the top of the tombstone read, Father. At the bottom it read, 
a voice we loved is stilled. Here's a declaration of faith. Blessed are the dead who died in the Lord. I think it was the first time for some of the couples, the first time they'd ever spent more than an hour or so in a graveyard. And their reactions were really interesting. Even though they were pastors, some of them felt noticeably uncomfortable in a graveyard. A few weren't sure of graveyard etiquette. Should we even be there or not? What about stepping on graves or climbing on headstones? Should we be making this a game? That morning in the cemetery made me realize just how awkward we all feel in a graveyard. A burial site isn't a place where anybody who feels who's alive feels at home. In fact, it's interesting to me how many people today are opting for cremation instead of burial. In the United States, 33.5% of people are cremated now. In Georgia, it's 22.1%. One reason, of course, is it's cheaper. But some folks are bothered by the thought of a loved one's body decomposing in the ground. Nature does in 20 years what cremation does in 20 minutes. But like everything else in our lives, it seems that we tend to prefer the instant over the long term. I'm just saying, our disdain for burials and cemeteries and graveyards might be why we've never been drawn to the burial of Jesus and perhaps have never considered its importance. And yet this evening, I want to take you on a tour of the graveyard. I want us to focus on the burial of Jesus Christ. Let me start by reading the last five verses of John chapter 19. It records what occurred in the moments after the cross. Verse 38 begins, After this, that is the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. This was a big step for Joseph. He'd been a secret disciple of Jesus and a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. According to Luke, he didn't consent to the death of Jesus. Perhaps he wasn't present at his trial. We don't know. But to watch his Lord be crucified with the approval of his own countrymen, this moved Joseph to action. Finally, this secret disciple came out of the closet. Joseph knew he was risking his position and his wealth, even his power to properly dispose of the body of Jesus. But after what he had seen that day, this was the least that he could do. It was way past time for him to step up and be counted. Like most Jewish men of means, his hometown was Arimathea, but Joseph owned a tomb in Jerusalem. Students of the Old Testament knew from Zechariah that when Messiah comes, the first place he'll visit is Jerusalem, and particularly he'll set his foot down on the Mount of Olives. This is why even today the Mount of Olives is covered with Jewish graves. When Messiah comes, they all want to be there to greet him first. Joseph's grave was a little northwest of the Mount of Olives, near an outcropping of rock known as the skull. It took Roman permission to take a body down from a cross. Crucifixion was not just a means of torture, it was a deterrent. 
It was a warning to the locals that Rome meant business. Rebellion would be dealt with harshly. This is why the Romans usually left a body on the cross for days. They allowed the victim to become food for the vultures or for the wild dogs. It all sent a message. Mark tells us that Joseph mustered his courage and he asked Pilate for permission to take the body off the cross. After it was certain Jesus was dead, permission was granted. John continues, And so he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came. Joseph and now Nicodemus were both rich men. They probably had servants and resources. But this wasn't a task that they would delegate or that they would hire out. Oh no, they took the body of Jesus off the cross themselves. It probably required a ladder, a harness, even some rope. Joseph may have brought a crowbar to help him pry the nails from the wood under Jesus' hands and feet. Imagine Joseph and Nicodemus lowering Jesus' body gently, gingerly, carefully, compassionately. The Romans had abused this body for hours pre previous. They had torn it to shreds. But now Jesus would be treated with the dignity and honor due Him, even if it was a little too late. Displayed in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica is a sculpture by the artist Michelangelo. It's called the Piata. Jesus' crucified body is draped across Mary's lap as she nurses His wounded corpse. Amazingly, the marble oozes with tenderness. It's an incredible sculpture. It's one of Michelangelo's most famous works. But as warm and as lifelike the sculpture appears, it's historically inaccurate. For Mary never cared for the crucified body of Jesus. This duty fell to Joseph of Arimathea and to Nicodemus. And imagine how messy a task this was. His body was covered with sweat and blood and urine and dust. Did they carry him on a stretcher? Or did they cradle him in their arms? After lifting the bloody body off the cross, they took it to a nearby tomb. It was Joseph's family plot. No doubt purchased at a pretty penny. It had never been used. According to verse 40, they had with them a mixture of myrrh and aloes. About a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Imagine a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes and spices. Unlike the Egyptians, the Jews never practiced embalming. So to preserve the corpse in the hot, tropical, Mediterranean climate, it was coated with spices and oils and aloes and creams. This stifled the smell and stench of decay and death. And notice the two men followed the custom of the Jews. In a Jewish burial, the first thing that happened to the corpse was a careful cleansing. Any foreign objects or substances were removed from the body. The body was washed. Think of what this meant for Joseph and for Nicodemus. Holding Jesus' head in their lap, they picked out the thorns that were still embedded in his brow. 
Splinters from that old rugged cross had to be removed from his shoulders, from his back. As did the bits, the little bits of bone and ivory that had burrowed into his back during the scourging. Imagine these men cleaning the punctured wounds in Jesus' forehead and the perforations in his hands and feet and side. I'm sure there were moments when Joseph and Nicodemus didn't think any of this was real. Just that morning, they had no idea what their day would hold. I mean, when will he wake up? When will we wake up? Days later, Thomas will put his finger in Jesus' scars. But he wasn't the first human to touch them. Joseph and Nicodemus had cleaned out those wounds at his burial. When the work was done, Jesus' body was again bound in strips of linen. At his birth, they were called swaddling clothes. At his death, they became a shroud. Verse 41 tells us, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Matthew says the tomb belonged to Joseph. And so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. In Mark chapter 15, verse 46, adds one more important detail to the picture. And they rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. That stone probably set in a channel. It rolled downhill over the grave's opening, as if the door were slamming shut. The imposing stone had an air of permanence, of finality. And why did Jesus go through this ordeal of burial? He didn't have to. There was a point on the cross during His crucifixion where the Lord Jesus cried out, It is finished! The price for sin had been paid. Judgment had been served. All that needed to be done had been done. Nothing in the atonement necessitated a burial. If Jesus had been resurrected 30 seconds after He died, or even three minutes, our sin would still be forgiven. God's power could have quickened His dead body while still on the cross, just as easily as from Joseph's tomb. In fact, it would have created quite a stir, wouldn't it? An instant resurrection would have surprised quite a few bystanders. His victory would have been immediate and apparent. But Jesus chose to be buried. And we ask why. With the time I have left, I'd like to give to you tonight six reasons why Jesus' burial is part of the gospel, part of the good news. I'll list them for you, then I want to go back and talk about them briefly. First, his burial was a confirmation of his death. His burial was a fulfillment of prophecy. His burial was a show of humility. His burial was an expression of love. His burial was an example of his character. And his burial was a test of our faith. First, Jesus' burial was a confirmation of his death. Before Pilate released the body to Joseph, he first sought verification from a soldier on duty that Jesus was actually dead. This is the reason they didn't break the victim's bones, the bones in his legs. 
Often they would hasten a crucified person's death by breaking the legs, causing them to literally suffocate when they couldn't push up to catch their breath. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They didn't need to break his legs. Yet just in case anyone missed it, his burial removed all doubt. He was dead. The cross didn't just knock him out. He didn't just swoon from a loss of blood and revive in a chilly tomb. No, a hundred pounds of aloes and spices and myrrh eliminated that possibility. No, you don't bury a man and leave him in a grave for three days unless you are certain he is dead. Jesus' burial was a confirmation of his death. And then second, his burial was a fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament prophets predicted as much. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says of the Messiah, He was with a rich man at his death. That's one reason why two wealthy Jewish aristocrats attended firsthand to Jesus' burial. And yet Jesus also personally prophesied His burial. You remember earlier that very week, after His entry into Jerusalem, Jesus spoke of His death as a seed being buried in the soil. John 12 verse 24 quotes Him, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. A seed nestles in the soil to yield a crop. And likewise, Jesus will be buried in the earth to fulfill all God's plan and bring many souls to salvation. A third reason Jesus was buried was a show of humility. You see, the point of the incarnation, Jesus coming to this earth, incarnate or in the flesh, in the likeness of men, was to identify with all men. That meant Jesus went the way of all flesh. His burial speaks of just how low He was willing to go to identify with you and me. For the likeness of men stretched all the way to the grave. Every one of us will one day lie on a mortician's gurney. Our ashen flesh will reek of death. Well, Jesus humbled Himself. He went there too. And when we have a loved one die in our presence, or when we have to bury a person that we've loved, Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to realize that He knows what it's like. It was said of Jesus, by death and burial, He came down to our level. By resurrection, He raised us to His. And then fourth, Jesus' burial is an expression of His love. Jesus knows that we are all destined to take a walk one day through the graveyard. It's where everyone's journey on earth comes to an end. But Jesus walked it before us, and He will walk us with us, walk it with us when our time comes. He wants us to know that He loves us and that He cares for us. As the poet put it, no other God have I but thee, born in a manger, died on a tree, buried in a grave, just like me. I wasn't born in a manger, and chances are I won't die on a tree. But one day I'll be buried, just like Him. This is why His burial is an expression of His love and concern. He didn't have to go there, but He did. My wife is a nurse and she's had to care for the body of patients who've just died. You remove the probes. 
and you take out the IVs and you clean off the bandages and any fluids. She told me that it's a very personal, it's a very intimate experience. Kathy says that when a nurse doesn't know the patient personally, she likes to turn on the television while she preps the body. The distraction sort of keeps the powerful connection at bay. But when you know the deceased, the feelings can be overwhelming. You're wiping away the last traces of a life that you've loved. You're with them, even though they're no longer with you. This is a connection you never forget. Bonds are formed in the valley of death. As David said of the Good Shepherd, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Jesus is with us in more ways than we know. If we're counting on the Savior's love to see us all the way to heaven, then hey, please, trust Him in the graveyard. And then fifth, Jesus' burial was an example of His character. Jesus wasn't afraid. He had no fear. Jesus wasn't afraid of the grave. And He wasn't fearful of all that went with it. The inactivity. The silence, the loneliness, the isolation, the unknown, the uncertainty of the grave. For a Christian who believes in the future resurrection of our bodies, burial is a pause in life. It's in between the salvation we've believed and the salvation we'll ultimately receive. What Jesus did on the cross will redeem everything that sin has touched, including what it's done to our physical bodies. When a person does die an agonizing death, when disease ravages their body and squeezes the very life out of them, we often say, well, at least now they're at peace. There is a truth to that. I don't know if their spirit is at peace or if their spirit is in torment, but finally the body does rest. Certainly we believe, as Paul wrote, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The moment we die as believers, our spirit leaves behind this old shell, but only temporarily. Our salvation isn't complete until the day comes when the trumpet sounds and these mortal bodies put on immortality. That means every cemetery is a holding area. It's just a waiting room. It's a pause, not a resting place. And you'll discover that all God does includes a pause. As soon as Lazarus came down with serious symptoms, his sisters, they sent for Jesus. But we're told when Jesus heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Jesus lingered. Lazarus needed him right then. But Jesus waited. In fact, by the time Jesus arrived, the body of Lazarus was already in the tomb. He had been buried for four days. Jesus was the resurrection and the life. He would work a miracle and bring his friend Lazarus back to life. But first, his burial represented a pause. 
all burials do. And again, Jesus isn't afraid of the pauses. Of what goes on behind the scene, or under the ground, or in the crypt. Jesus is confident, my friend. He knows that death has been defeated. He is certain of His own ultimate victory. Burial is the time in between death and resurrection. And isn't that where we do most of our living? We're always dying to something, aren't we? To ourselves, to our selfish ways, to our personal agendas, to our self-perceived importance. The Christian life is all about dying to my will and submitting to God's will. And then watching God breathe His newness into that thing to which I just died. Whether it's a dream, or a relationship, or an ambition, or a ministry. There's a time when I let it go. I let it die. And He resurrects it. And makes it what He desired it to be all along. Which brings me to the last reason for Jesus' burial. It was a test of faith. Oh, it would have delighted the disciples to see Jesus fly off that cross, superhero style, and be raised to life without delay, to be resurrected before the eyes of His enemies, His torturers, His mockers, in spectacular fashion. Oh, they would have loved to have watched Jesus get the last laugh that day. But think of the lessons the disciples would have missed. It took another three days for the deep regret, for the heartfelt repentance to set in, to ferment in their hearts. For true repentance to plow up and churn up their hearts and ready them to meet the one they'd betrayed. It took some time. For the three days that Jesus' body was in the ground, the disciples' thoughts ran wild. They recalled His sayings. They pondered His promises. Was it truly over now? They worried about their own plight. As His followers, would they now be fugitives? Would they become targets for persecution themselves? The disciples were now fearful of all that Jesus' burial had brought. That inactivity. And that silence, it troubled them. That's why Peter and a few others couldn't just sit still. They decided to go fishing. They were afraid of the loneliness and the isolation. That's why they were all huddled together in that upper room. And the disciples were now afraid of the unknown and the uncertainty. That's why you can bet the door to that room was bolted shut. In short, the sincerity of their faith was under test. Here's what the burial of Jesus teaches us. Even when the stone is rolled in place, and it looks like things are finally over, that God's plans and promises have failed, they haven't. God hasn't stopped working. He is still up to something behind that stone. A miracle is still in the offing, and we desperately need to believe. The disciples would have never learned that lesson. We would have never learned that lesson had it not been for the burial of Jesus. And that's why it is also good news. 
Author Philip Yancey points out that the crucifixion and the resurrection have both earned names on the church's calendar. We call them Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But the day of His burial, Saturday, is the day with no name. Yancey writes, Yet in a real sense, we live on Saturday. What the disciples experienced in small scale, three days in grief over one man who had died on a cross, we now live through on a cosmic scale. Human history grinds on between the time of promise and fulfillment. Can we trust that God can make something holy and beautiful and good out of a world that's full of pain, injustice, and poverty? It's Saturday on planet earth. Will Sunday ever come? It's a good thing to remember that in the cosmic drama, we live out our days on Saturday, the in-between day with no name. There's a woman who lies buried under a 150-year-old oak tree in a Louisiana cemetery. Before she died, she instructed her relatives what she wanted to be engraved on her tombstone. It was one word, waiting. In a sense, we're all waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come. For Jesus to right all wrongs and establish His kingdom and bring His peace to this earth. We're waiting on Him to end disease and shut down death and restore this world to the garden paradise God originally intended for it to be. It's Saturday, but Sunday's coming. Sunday was not the day of faith. Sunday was the day of celebration. Jesus had conquered. He was the victor. His followers were astonished. They were thoroughly overjoyed. Friday wasn't the day of faith either. It was more a day of mourning and sorrow. With the terror of the cross in their face, it was probably too much to expect much faith from the disciples in that moment. Friday was a day of horrors. That's why the day of faith was Saturday, the middle day, the gap day, the day that stood between death and resurrection. Would the disciples believe what they couldn't see behind the stone? Can you and I believe what we can't see? The first disciples didn't realize it at the time, but their faith was being forged on Saturday. Faith was learned because Jesus was buried. I brought with me tonight a pack of seeds. They're marigold seeds. I like marigolds. And according to this pack, it says that when I plant them, I'll have a beautiful array of gorgeous marigold flowers. But what if I went to plant these seeds and found out that they were scared? What if seeds could talk to their planter? And what if these seeds copped an attitude? What if they were to say to me, Hey, we don't want to be planted. We don't want to be down in that dirt. It's nice and clean up here in your jacket pocket. And I replied, But it's your job to get dirty. Seeds go in the soil, not in a pocket. Yeah, but we're going on strike. 
I would say, what's the problem with you seeds? Do you really think that I'm going to hurt you? Of course we do. We're afraid. Hey, we don't want to be buried. We don't want to die. That's it? You're afraid to die? Yes, it happened to our friends. They all died. They got buried and we never saw them again. Oh, but you did see them again. Your friends are these gorgeous flowers that you've been looking at that have sprouted up. Sure doesn't look like them. That's because like Jesus, the old body gets buried, but it rises again with a transformed, glorious body. Finally, my seeds might conclude, wow, do we get to do that too? And like the seeds, we get to do that too. Nature teaches us that before we enjoy the new life of spring, we first have to go through the death of winter. For three months, all the greenery, the life is buried underground. In the cold of January, do you believe in the warmth of March? Or you, do you doubt that the flowers will ever bloom again? I'm sure you have faith. I'm sure you persevere. You endure. Spring is coming. And this is the hope that we have when that last spade of dirt is thrown on the body of that loved one in Christ. We'll meet again. Resurrection is real. This is also the hope that we should have when joy fades and when trouble strikes and when problems blow in from the cold. God is still at work underground, behind the stone. It might be Saturday, but you just wait. Sunday's coming. We learned in 1 Corinthians 13 that God has a trio of graces that He bestows on His people. Faith, hope, and love. And all three play a vital role in this Easter season. We stand before the cross and we look on the crucified Christ for our salvation. And what He does there speaks to us of God's love. We rejoice in the risen Lord who has overcome death. Because He lives, nothing is impossible. He is our beacon of hope. But let's also spend some time at the tomb, outside the stone. Let's acknowledge the burial of Jesus, for in so many ways, it's Saturday, and we need greater faith. Let me close with one more tombstone from that graveyard in Rome, Georgia. It marks the grave of Lily Mitchell. Her gravestone is engraved with a poem that reads, A lily grows on every tomb. Life's symbol, sweet and fair. To bid the heart forget its gloom. For love lies buried there. For love lies buried there. And love was also buried in Jesus' grave. Even from the grave, our Lord Jesus was loving us and teaching us that life is full of pauses and delays and even moments when we wonder if God has left us. The burial of Jesus teaches us to trust in His love. The stone was rolled over the mouth of the grave. 
But God's power and His plans and His love keep rolling on behind that stone. It might be Saturday, but Sunday's coming. 